Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Dr. Aviva Ram, who is a world-renowned midwife and herbalist who also happens to be a Yale-trained MD and board-certified family physician with specialties in integrative gynecology, obstetrics, and pediatrics. Her new book, Hormone Intelligence, explores the impact of the world we live in on women's hormones and health and brings us a new medicine for women that is at once holistic and natural while being grounded in the best science and medicine have to offer. She's also a mother of four and grandmother of two. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me here with you. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited. Like I mentioned, this is my first podcast postpartum recording postpartum. We've had them like coming out, but it just feels so right. And I'm really excited because I feel like I have so many questions as well, um, just based off of my own experience. I love that. I remember my first things back postpartum. And one of my funniest was, I probably shouldn't tell this on real life, but um I had had my fourth baby and she was like your baby is seven weeks old and one of my midwifery clients went into labor a couple of weeks earlier so she lived just a couple of miles from my house and her husband's on the phone and you know I could just hear the mom in the background she was clearly having a fast labor and getting ready to push they didn't have time to do anything and I don't remember why I didn't have the car seat in my car because I would have always had the car seat in my car. Like I literally had to hop in the car with a breastfeeding baby and go to the birth. It was just like a two minute drive, but oh my gosh, (laughs) my baby to her sister and the little girl who was the older sibling said, mommy's upstairs making funny noises. And I walked in and she pushed the baby out. It was just one of those like, all right, you're back to work, Aviva. That's crazy. That's so funny. My husband came came with the car with car seat after he must have had that car seat or something. And I was home with the baby with the other car without the car seat, not anticipating going anywhere. It's just like, yeah. Oh my God, we're going now. I love that. I had like so many dreams with my first that a postpartum that I would just get in wearing him and just drive. And I also recommend it. Yeah. And I like, I was like fantasizing because it just sounds so much better than like putting them in a car seat and having them scream. But it is what it is. So yeah, my, my birth was very similar to that. It was so fast and I was GBS positive and I elected not to take antibiotics during my pregnancy. And so I did a lot of like different holistic methods. Um, and I spoke with my family physician and, and actually Dr. Zach Bush too, and cause he's my son's doctor. And he just told me that, I, do you know what ion biome is? Yeah. He would just told me to like spray ion biome on a bad, like every time I peed or before we had sex and, and then I did so many other things and somehow it actually did clear it. But what happened was after when um, I had a super fast birth mm-hmm. in the bathtub, like it was an hour birth. So even if I had wanted to take antibiotics, like couldn't. Yeah, because I mean, honestly, with all due respect to 
to Zach, I mean, that is not a cure for GBI. Yeah. No, I did so many other things. It was yeah, just like, so, like women need to really know, like the, you know, it, the risks are real. And I, I like, I'm one of the, you know, first people who talked about using alternatives to, for treatment, but at the same time, the important thing is kind of us. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what I did was, um, I like, I did, I used a, like different things like ozone suppositories and stuff like that. But my daughter, after she was born, had rapid breathing mm-hmm. and um, it ended up being just like amniotic fluid that hadn't come out. And, but because it was longer than like the transition period of like six hours, we just wanted to be safe and transferred to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I had to convince them to hold off on antibiotics until the cultures came back, which was really tough to do. But I was really lucky to be working with a doctor that finally was like, okay, I'll just wait until we see what's going on because she seemed fine. And um, she didn't have any in, in her urine or blood cultures. And I thought that was just really interesting because I think like you mentioned, there's so many holistic ways of treating things. And also I was in a situation where I saw how quickly it could go bad. If you're, um, if you're not like, you know, it it could have gone bad too. Um, for me, I, I was very diligent, but I guess from that experience, what I realized and what I've read a lot is that some midwives and some people, they, they say, Think of yourself because you don't test until 36 weeks. And so what I've heard is think of yourself as GBS positive from day one and try and incorporate these things beforehand. And so those natural healing things are things that you do before so that when you do test, then you, instead of just like last minute, basically the last like four weeks being like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Well, it's really difficult to then. I teach about that a lot. And um, so we know that there's a lot to do with the vaginal microbiome and the gut microbiome that can lead to an increased likelihood of group B strep. There are lots of women who do preventative stuff and they still end up having group B strep. So it's not a hundred percent, but you can do a lot. I mean, I've been doing it for almost 37 years and started writing about it back in the eighties about what you can do to get your vaginal microbiome as healthy as possible. And also your urinary microbiome, because you can have group E strep in your urine. So that that's you, what I did. Yeah, yeah. It was a really high likelihood of being positive later on, but yeah. ozone suppositories, all of that, like that is not, I mean, I'm glad it helped for you, but I definitely don't recommend that in my practice. Like Doing the things like the good probiotics, the dietary strategies, all of that is really pretty well tested and, and true and also safe. Whereas like with pregnancy, yeah. I'm not super keen on experimental, but the important, like if you have a fast labor, you have to have the antibiotics on board for four hours before the baby's born anyway for them to, it's unlikely you're going to get them on time. Um, and then newborns do have something called, it's called TTN. It's um, just transient tachypnea and it's like a normal rapid breathing. So I think a lot of midwives don't know about that. And so um, it, oftentimes it is that, but it is really important because that can be a sign of infection. So it's great that you, you got it checked out and yay, that baby was fine and you didn't have to go down that hole, like ugh, stressful yeah. postpartum with medical and antibiotics and I know it's, it's hard and it's, it's definitely a fine line. And like you say, I think 
I'm definitely more of like less is more nature, you know, let's go the natural route, but you understand why both my children actually have rare genetic conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a rare metabolic condition or mitochondrial condition. And so I understand, um, you know, the value in Western medicine and in screening and, and having those things because we wouldn't have known if it wasn't for the newborn screening test, um, the condition was, which is why we do see Dr. Zach Bush. And so it's really, it's really a matter of like being grateful for that, but then trying as much as you can to go the natural route as well and see what you can incorporate. And that's what I love. You've been doing these like great infographics on your social media as well that I think is so um, just like easy to kind of take in and, and think about things in a different way. I think like recently you did one on vaginal dryness or just different things that are obviously all hormone related. And so I'm curious what inspired you. I I feel like you could have gone so many different routes with your book, with mm-hmm. launching a book and writing a book. I mean, I'm sure you have so many different things to say. And so I'm curious what made you think or want to write a book on hormones? Yeah. I mean, one, I've done books on natural pregnancy and natural children's health and, you know, a textbook on herbs. So those kind of bases were covered, although I do really want to do a new pregnancy book for like this time. I feel like times have shifted so much. But um, the and I have a book, Adrenal Thyroid, that really covers women's autoimmune and fatigue. So it felt like one of the gaps for me in what I wanted to write about and share about was these really, really common women's health conditions that get chalked up as normal, but really aren't normal in the sense of like women aren't meant to suffer just because we have women's bodies. And there's this idea like period pain and hormone imbalances and polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis and fertility challenges, and the list goes on are just sort of par for the course of being women. And, you know, like you were saying, it's, it's not like we don't, have respect for and gratitude for Western medicine, it's what's the entry point? Do we just jump right to that or we do everything we can within our power to think of our bodies more in an ecosystems kind of way? Like what are the ecosystems that I live in and what are the ecosystems happening within me that may be influencing my health and my hormone health? And what can I do about that rather than just jumping right to a birth control pill or other pharmaceutical or surgery as the answer. So mm-hmm. just, I hear from so many women, uh, you know, tens of thousands of women and over and over, I'm hearing some of the same struggles repeatedly. And um, I feel like so many women are just, there's a lot out there on the internet, but they don't fully know what to trust. And it's almost like all or nothing. You either kind of like, go really, really alternative, or you go really, really conventional, you either figure it out all for yourself, or you just do what the doctor said. And so for me, I think being a midwife and an herbalist and an MD, I kind of get the whole gamut of it and wanted to say, actually, there's like, there's a third road where it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And you also don't have to figure it out all yourself. And for me, also the other thing, and I think you're probably there with trusting your body, right? Like how you had your baby. I think so many women have just lost faith in their body's abilities to heal and be well. And 
from, you know, the almost 40 years I've been doing this work. Like that is one thing that I just see is so powerful is our ability to be resilient. And, you know, another thing I really wanted to incorporate in the book was, you know, kind of like you said, you know, your children have rare mitochondrial deficits and there's nothing that you could have done to prevent that. They're not your fault as a mom. There's nothing like wrong with your kids. There's just a genetic variation. And I think so many women, when they find out they have PCOS or endometriosis or a fertility challenge or whatever it is, even if it is something completely genetic, they're like, what am I doing wrong? Or what's wrong with me? Am I broken? And I really wanted to have another voice that said, there's nothing wrong with you and you're not broken, but we are living in a world that puts a lot of pressures on our natural biology and our natural well-being. And to really take the pressure off of us of like blaming ourselves and thinking we're broken into saying, okay, we live with these challenges in the world and what can I do to be whole within that? So it's like a whole bunch of things that led to that book finally getting bored. I love that. I, I am curious, like talking about endometriosis and PCOS. I, I, I mean, I think so many people are starting to talk about having that or having that experience and specifically with endometriosis and just like the surgery and things around that. I'm curious what you what you recommend when people have that. And it doesn't mean that when someone has that, they can't get pregnant. No, not at all. And most women who get, who do have endometriosis get pregnant just fine. Um, a lot of women have it, don't even know they have it. And it doesn't really interfere with their fertility or reproductive health at all. Um, from a conventional perspective, um, often a number of different surgeries are done, excision th- surgeries to take the endometriosis lesions out, hysterectomy, which actually has limited value on some level because the lesions aren't actually in your uterus. They're elsewhere, like they're in your abdomen and other places. So for me, the first thing I always do is just kind of get a sense of where a woman who comes to me is along the lines of, look, I've been dealing with this for 20 years. I'm in chronic pain. I've had my children or I don't want to have children and I'm just done with this. And I just want the surgery. And like, I respect that choice and say, okay, well, here's what you could do if you wanted to for a while first to, and most women come to me, they're not at that point. It's very rare. Most people are coming to me because they want to try something besides that. Um, I really try to understand like, well, where are you in your life? How are the symptoms affecting you? What do we need to do for symptom support? And what do we need to do to unpack the, what I call root causes of what's really going on. And that's the thing with drugs and surgery. Even if you take a pharmaceutical and you're you know doing something hormonal or doing something for pain, or even if you have a surgery, it doesn't take away the roots of immune disruption, hormonal disruption that may even be coming from environmental endocrine disruptors. And so those things can still affect you in other ways. So for me, it's how do we look at this as an opportunity in a way to say, okay, what are all the things impacting you as a woman that are setting your immune system or your hormonal system awry? And what can we do to restore balance and restore that alignment? And then within that, I'll use dietary strategies, meditation, lifestyle, and then botanicals and nutritional supplements as appropriate to each different woman who comes to see me. And there's a lot about self-compassion in there that I try to bring and patience. You know, I think we're so used to 
pharmaceuticals that are like, okay, you take it and you feel relief in 20 minutes from your headache. And so we expect that same thing with hormonal imbalances, but often these have been happening for years, if not decades. So having that patience to say, okay, where am I now? What can I do today? What can I do the next day? How do I thrive with this? How do I not judge myself about it? And what are the actual tools that reduce inflammation and support the immune system? Mm-hmm. And I take that approach. It doesn't matter what the condition is. And that's part of what hormone intelligence is really about is that we all manifest cultural, social, economic, dietary, nutritional stress. We all manifest those imbalances differently in our bodies, depending on what our own unique genetic situation is, our biological setup is. But the root causes for most of these are actually really similar. And that's what hormone intelligence is about. It's getting to those roots that we all have in common, while then adding in the protocols that are specific to each of the different conditions. Hey everyone, I wanna tell you about a new airline I recently came across called Aero. I was really intrigued because they're a semi-private airline company that flies to places my husband and I either love going to or have on our bucket list, like Aspen, Jackson Hole, Sun Valley, and even places closer to home in Napa and Northern California. However, the fact that a lot of these destinations are in mountain ranges or national parks can sometimes make them difficult to get to and usually involves multiple flights, which makes me hesitant to book with two kids. Then I came across Arrow and realized this could be the solution I've been waiting for, especially during these unpredictable times with COVID. Like I mentioned, Arrow is a semi-private airline that also provides amazing services that honestly for me make it absolutely worth the investment. I love that they use cabin light therapy based on psychology. For example, their custom colored lighting system helps disassociate from motion sickness and their onboarding warm light and soft music helps calm your nervous system. I also love the fact that you can customize your meals and choose healthy options for you and the whole family. Plus, finally, our dog can come with us as they're pet friendly. Another feature I love about not flying with a major airline are their private terminals. Traveling with a toddler and a newborn already adds so much extra time and forethought getting to and from the airport and having this expedited check-in system and also just a little more privacy to get the kids ready for the flight is priceless. If you've got an upcoming trip to an outdoors location and are looking for an alternative to the major airlines, you should definitely check out Aero. And until December 31st, be sure to use code THEFULLEST when booking your next flight to get 10% off your trip, which is a big deal. So enjoy, and hopefully you check them out. Yeah, I love that because it it makes so much sense. It manifests differently in each person, but when you want to take the layers back and really look into it, it's all similar steps. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So as a mother and a grandmother... I'm so curious how you and when you start to kind of share these things with your children and in terms of just like accepting. And I mean, I think a lot of things is just like showing or teaching them through just being right. And the way we are, but then things like 
like my son is like three years old and it's my son, not my daughter's like only seven weeks. Right. So I'm not doing anything in that sense for her yet. But my son is curious because I had a home birth. So he was, um, he would tell people, Oh, mommy can't come outside because she's healing her, um, PP and her, he would say like the same thing, her PP and her butt are healing. <laughs> and it was just so funny, but he also knew, you know, there's blood involved and there's all these things. And I was trying to, you know, share, but not like make it creepy and yeah. scary and whatever. And so I'm curious with daughters, like, I, you know, when you start sharing those things, because my mom was really open with me as a child before I had my period and she would like show me and stuff like that. And I, I appreciated that so much, but I'm also curious other people's perspective on, yeah, you know, for me, it was about finding that balance between just living, right? Like I was back in the day, you couldn't get really great menstrual products like there weren't that because I'm 55 so when I started like living naturally I was 15 so there were no menstrual cups that were available there were no like cool organic cotton pads and tampons so I just made my own cloth pads wow the time I started having my kids you know they knew like mom's pads were soaking in the closet right I mean in the shower like on my period like on my moon time I would just have my little bucket and soak my pads and rinse them so you know stuff like that like was just part of life but it wasn't like I foisted it on them either so you know the bathroom door like when the kids were little I mean they would just come like they would sit on my lap when I was peeing half the time yeah. you know, it was like all over you um yeah. So like we always just had kind of that open door policy. And then when the kids got to be older, because my oldest is a boy too, when they got to be around seven or eight, I would kind of like let them choose, you know, did they want to come in the room when I was changing or not? Did they want to come in the bathroom when I was in the shower or not? Did they want to come like walk in and brush their teeth while I was peeing or not? So kind of giving them a little bit of space to meet them where they are. And then anytime they asked me questions, I always just gave really factual answers, you know, tried to make it age appropriate. And like you said, not scary or like in their face, but at the same time, just provide those answers. And then of course I was midwifing. So it was really common for me as my family jokes, like to get a, a phone call at dinner and, you know, me say, oh, like, well, okay, what color is the discharge? What's it smell like? Or, yeah. There were times where somebody came to my house for a prenatal visit and one of the kids was sitting in with me and I would do an, a, you know, if there was some reason that I would do a postpartum exam and one of the kids with, with, was with me and I was looking at a mom's bottom if she tore, you know, just look at healing. And so they were all kind of there. I had one, I had one mama who I midwife, she was from Ecuador. And she had a, had she had had a tear that I repaired, and my two oldest daughters were there with me. The baby was still like in a sling or backpack, and then my apprentice, her daughters, her two daughters were there, and they were all like seven, eight, nine, and below. And Tanya, the mom, she was like, "Oh, just bring them in." She was so lovely. She was like, "Just bring them in," and like, "Well, we're gonna look at your bottom." She's like, "Oh, that's fine." So we had like four little girls heads of the bed while I'm looking at this mom's bottom. And I think, I mean, they, I don't like, they kind of just remember it as funny, you know, but I think it also created a normalization for them. I think it's so important. And that's like my postpartum visits recently, my son's been part of it, or he was part of, you know, the little ultrasounds and seeing mm -hmm. everything. And 
I just really enjoy having them there. And it reminds me of things like that other things in our culture, like how we're so far away from the concept of death and people dying and we don't have that experience. So bringing them part of the birth experience. And then also when people in our family, I mean, my son was too young, but my grandmother was on hospice at home. And so that was a beautiful experience for me to experience and, and for all of us to be there. And, and so just normalizing all of that is so important, but you don't, I I don't know if it's, you know, something that also freaks them out and it shouldn't be, but it is what it is. It's, you know, having the conversation, paying attention to their body language and their, you know, how they respond and react and then finding ways also to, you know, like your kid going out and saying mommy's pee pee and butt is healing. Yeah. What are you saying that you're you pretty much assume that if you say it at home, your kid's going to say it out in public. Yeah. At that point. So like knowing what might be repeated is probably also just a good thing <laughs> to keep in mind if it's of concern. Yeah. No, I don't care. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm also curious for this time you were saying there were your previous books that you wish that you could rewrite for now. I'm curious, what are those things that you think have changed since the time that you wrote your book? Yeah, so a few things. I mean, the books still stand because they're, you know, they're such classics. But for one thing, I think, because the first book I wrote, the natural pregnancy book was like 1990, I think it came out, or 92. So it was really early on in the kind of conversation about natural birth and um, natural pregnancy or physiologic birth and pregnancy that um i think that the conversation is much more advanced and further along now so when i was first midwifing in 1985 and i would tell somebody i was a midwife they'd say you're a what like we still have those yeah yes we still have those and the idea that anyone would have their baby at home was so off the chain bizarre um so i think now i would have a a different audience that would be really receptive in a new way to kind of like a a slightly different conversation about why you might choose a home birth as opposed to like such, such a gentle approach to it in the earlier books. Um, I mean, I still take a gentle approach. I think the other thing is that when I wrote the books in um, the late eighties was when I started writing them after my second baby was born, the C-section rate at that time was about 21%. And that was considered higher than it had ever been and was like being considered a, a public health crisis. And we're now at 34%. Wow. I thought it was going to go down for some yeah, reason. Right? It's, it's leveled out. It hasn't continued to go up, but it's 34% nationally. And so to me, able to be able to talk about now, we have a lot more data about why that's a problem. So I would be a little bit more, I would be stronger about that. Not that home birth is the end all and be all for everybody, but really understanding the risks of walking into a hospital and how to be an advocate for yourself. Where back then I focused more on the natural things that you can do to take care of yourself because that was a little bit more what people were ready for. The other thing now is with the pandemic that has put home birth on the map in a whole new way. Yeah. We need much more of a guide about how to make these choices. So I have a small book actually called the pocket guide I think it's called the pocket guide to natural birth. It's around here somewhere. It's a tiny little, oh yeah, here it is. The pocket guide to midwifery care, which is really hard to find. It's this little tiny book I wrote. It came out in like, 
oh gosh, I don't even know. And um, this is a great little book because it, let's see, this came out in 1998, believe it or not. And this is all about how to choose where you have your baby, how to choose whether to have a midwife, all about the interventions to accept and not accept. But there's so many more interventions now, and we have better data on why so many of them are a problem and when to get them and how to say no to them. And so I would include more of that, which is what I actually include all of that now in this new program I have called the Mama Path, which is on my website. And so I've been able to just take all of it and download it there and say, all right, the, the books are still like beautiful and classic. And they're really that like crunchy voice. The other thing I would say that would be different about the books now is that I think that the folks who were choosing to birth a certain way back in the late eighties and early nineties, it was generally not exclusively, but generally either heteronormative or, um, to mamas having babies together. And now the landscape has shifted so much on what a family looks like. Um, when I first wrote those books, doulas weren't really a thing in the United States. So there are just like new options now that new options, new ways of doing family, so many things that are rich to talk about. But I actually enjoy the liberty of teaching this stuff in online classes over books in some ways, because then I can just keep updating and revising and Nobody has to buy a new book every time I revise something. It makes sense, like you said, because I researched so much before my son was born and I had his hospital birth with him. And I was like, I don't want Pitocin. I don't want this. I don't want this intervention. You know, obviously, if I can help it, I don't want these things yeah. to happen. But even, and I had a doula, but when it came down to it and my water broke and contractions hadn't started and, um, that was a whole nother thing because my water was just kind of like not really broken. It was just a little leaking, but that was anyways. Um, I had plenty of amniotic fluid, but then they were like, okay, well you need to have the baby. And they induced me still with mm -hmm. cytotech and mm -hmm. I didn't know what cytotech was. It wasn't in any of the books I'd read. It wasn't in anything I had um, done research on. And my doula had no idea what it was either. Do you have like contractions from hell once that happened or was it okay? No, it didn't start. So then they had to get on another round of it. And then it, so it was like, uh, I was kind of annoyed that I even took it, but I mean, I've processed that pain or, you know, that birth trauma for a while now. I couldn't even say the word cytotech for so long because I was so upset about it. But now it was part of my path and I learned a lot from that experience. And I, I loved my you know, I loved my birth and um, mm -hmm. I loved my doctor still. Like it wasn't anything. I just felt like it had I gone, I wish that I had known all of the things. So like you're saying, it's so nice to update because there are just new ways of doing things that. Okay. And yeah. that's, all, that's all in my online course, which is, so we're growing that out right now. It's been, so it started during the beginning of the pandemic, actually, when um, a year ago, April, so April 2020, women were being told they had to go into the hospital and birth alone. They couldn't yeah. bring the doula, they couldn't bring their partner. And so I was like, all right, I need to, my midwife self just went, into, my midwife mama bear self just went into high gear and created this space online for women to get together and talk and like get support. And one thing led to another and I ended up creating this like 40 hour online free childbirth education program, childbirth, birth, postpartum, newborn. 
And now we've had like 10,000 people register for it. And it's been free this whole time. And wow. then we also, all this time we've run a, a weekly support group, um, myself and then graduates of my women's integrative functional medicine training program who are nurse midwives and lactation consultants and doulas and childbirth educators. So every week we have a group of, and you know, you just come for free, you show up, it's Thursday afternoon at one and we just provide support about anything you, that you have going on, whether you're pregnant or we have women who are trying to conceive, women who are due and who are being pressured to induce, women who are postpartum. And so now we're turning it, I'm really excited about it, as you can tell, into a membership community that will launch by the end of 2021. So just so excited. That's so amazing. And also happens so fast. Putting stuff like this together <laughs> takes so long. So yeah. That's incredible that you did that so quickly to support women. And it was really fun. It's so rewarding. I mean, it's been so rewarding, especially we've had like a lot of women. Um, we've had a lot of black indigenous women of color who we've had several women who are like, I mean, this course saved my life because I was being ignored in the hospital and I actually had preeclampsia or this or that or the other was happening. So it's been really incredibly rewarding. And oh, it's just like my passion project. That's really great. Uh, one thing I I I am always really interested in researching and was before, especially on having a natural birth, is managing pain naturally. And I'm curious because I was reading up the, on um, midwives up in some northern European countries. They have like they're also acupuncturists, so acupuncturists. So they incorporate that healing modality during yeah. birth to help naturally relieve pain. And I had read that and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to call my acupuncturist and tell her she needs to be on C-Dial. I ended up not doing that, but I had a really close friend of mine who also is my craniosacral therapist. She came to my birth and that helped me so much. As soon as she walked in the room, I felt like my pain went away. And yeah. It's amazing. And so I'm curious what other ways you've, um, you know, what other healing modalities you've used in your births? Yeah. So one of the things that you just said is so important and powerful, like all the, the research that had been done on doulas, like in the 1970s, before doulas were a thing in the US was actually done on simply on the power of having a woman that you trust in the room with you. Like that alone, someone that you really, really trust who brings you peace. And that like, that may not be your mom, for example, because your mom yeah. may have her own anxieties or may like have a different idea of birth. It may not be the obvious person, but whoever that person is in for you is your craniosacral therapist for me. Like, you know, at one point it was one of my best friends. It's just like, what brings you peace? We actually know that relieves pain. It facilitates birth because you're getting that oxytocin pumping, um, and it's been shown to reduce the need for intervention, C-section, all of that is really powerful. So having someone you trust there, whether that's your doula or like a wonderful sister or friend, um, it's so important. Um, movement, it, for me, movement for personally, for me, like like anything that's like belly dancing, moving my hips, hip circles, being on a birthing ball that just like allows me to move water walking, really listening to my body. I mean, for me, like one of the things that I have really worked with women during labor, um, 
as a midwife and as a physician working in the hospital even is imagine your animal body. Like if you were an animal, like if you were actually an animal, what animal would you be? And women are just like a cat or a horse, you know, like come up with something and they'll be like, okay, so just like go deep. Imagine if you were that animal, what would your body be doing right now? And I've seen women just get, get on the floor, like get on the floor on pillows in the hospital and just start like cat and cow, you know, and doing these amazing things that facilitate birth. Water can be in a shower. For me, I'm a shower person more than a bath person. So like water birth isn't my personal jam because I don't love sitting in the bath anyway, but like my daughter-in-law loved it. And um, so many of my clients love it. So having the option there, if you think you might want water, a birthing tub's great, but any shower, um, having a place that you feel really comfortable getting out and walking, right? So like you're not, especially if your labor is longer, um, so you're not kind of like in the same four walls. So whether it's the hospital and you like are walking a birthing center, you're walking, if you can get outside even better, like if they have a, a patio or, you know, terrace or somewhere, or if you live, if you're having a baby at home, like in your neighborhood, Definitely I'm big on hands-on massage. So for me as a midwife, like a lot of physical movement um, of hands on body, often deep movement into the hips, um, creating open space, creating pressure, just sometimes even just being there is really important. Sound is really powerful, right? We can um, we can use our voice and our sound more even than our like voice more than words, but our sound to ground deep into our body to help facilitate birth. And then sometimes when needed, I mean, various things, herbs can be helpful, essential oils can be helpful, staying nourished and hydrated is really important. You know, um, we have this idea, we go into labor and we can't eat, but we actually need energy and calories to get through labor. So those are some of the various ways, visualization, meditation, hypnobirthing, chanting. For me, chanting was really big. Visual For me, like in my labors, because I used to run a lot of mama blessings. And so I know all these like, wonderful goddessy birthing songs, which I will not be singing on your podcast. Mm -hmm. um, for me, there was this one that was just um, a visualization of, the, I had two different ones, but my the ones that really worked for me was visualizing almost like the baby's head was like the center of a sunflower and then watching the petals just kind of open. That was really huge for me when I was in a rush, I would close my eyes and just visualize that opening. And the other visualization for me that I naturally went to in my own labors was, you know, like when you drop a pebble in water and you watch the ripples get wider, yeah. I would close my eyes and in a rush or so contraction, I would just visualize that that opening, 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 like that concentric circles that, so I, I guide lots of mamas through that. Using yeah. I, I had a chiropractor, my chiropractor tell me to just keep my chin down. Hmm. But I thought it was really interesting. And she said, just tell like the people around you, or if you notice, if your chin is up, you're most likely just trying to like, you're tensing up. Mm. And if you keep your chin down, then you're, you're going inward and then you're doing this with your baby. And so I just kept my chin down the entire time. And I, I thought it was the most incredible tip that anyone had ever given me because it helped me personally. But I, I think it just reminded me I'm doing this with my baby and totally. you know, yeah. Yeah. I stay in deep connection with my babies during my own labors and really encourage mama to remember that she's in this for a purpose. There isn't, there's an end to this moment, but she's in it for a purpose and ha staying aligned with the baby. Sometimes it's just like, it's anytime you're in your own moment of struggle or kind of like 
tension. If you think of somebody else, it often releases that. So if you're thinking about the baby, it can really help. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. You mentioned your daughter-in-law. Did you, were you her midwife? I was. I midwifed my, my two grandkids who are seven and turning 10. Oh, at home. So yeah. What is that like? Well, it was amazing. Um, she, interestingly, she's a Harvard trained pediatrician with a master's in public health from Harvard. She's a smart, she was getting prenatal care at, um, well, first she, because she's pretty conventional and I think she thought, oh, wow, like the Rom family is pretty out there and the things they do. I don't think she thought of herself as a home birther, but she started out working in a, in a medical setting. And then there were some errors that happened in information that was communicated to her in her first trimester that really stressed her out. And she asked me about it and I was like, mm, yeah, no, that's not, that's not accurate. Um, it, one thing was around one um, area of her blood work. And then another thing was a second thing happened. She switched to a nurse midwifery group at a birthing center, but then they told her she had gestational diabetes and she didn't actually have gestational diabetes. And they told her she had a thyroid problem and she didn't actually like medically she didn't. So I think she was considering having the baby. Well, first she asked me if I could be her midwife at the birthing center, but I'm a home birth midwife and I'm a medical doctor. Yeah. And so I worked at the hospital that was affiliated with that birthing center, but the doctors can't deliver or midwife in the birthing center. So the only way for her to have me there would be for her to transfer to the hospital. So that got her thinking. And one day she, she came over and she said, well, actually, it was kind of funny what happened because when she had one of the errors in her blood work and she asked me about it, I could tell that she was a little bit on the fence because even though I was already a physician and a Yale-trained physician, like she was yeah. like, I'm well-trained. When I told her, I think she was still like, well, is my doctor right or is my mother-in-law, the crunchy midwife, right? Yeah. So I was like, all right, I can see that you're like on the fence about my answer. So let me email. And I named this person and she's like, you can email him because he's one of the world's leading maternal fetal medicine specialists. Wow. And, she, and I used his first name. I was like, well, let me email so-and-so. And she's like, wait a minute, you can email him and, and you can call him by his first name. And I was like, yeah, he was my thesis advisor at Yale for my med for medical school. And, um, so then I emailed him and he wrote me back in like 15 minutes and she was like, Oh, hmm, he wrote you back. <laughs> and then it was like, his answer was like, yeah, this is totally what you're saying, Aviva. So I think she felt in her medical mind, she felt supported that she needed that. Like it wasn't just more like my home births were more hippie, crunchy midwife home births. Like that's how I roll, but that wasn't what she needed. So then once we got there, she just was like, on my bed one day, cause she wanted me to feel the baby's position. And she's like, you know, there's nobody I trust more in the world to take care of me during labor and birth than you. Would you midwife my baby? And I'm just like crying, you know, like when your daughter-in-law says that to you. And so then we went from there and it was the most incredible experience. It was definitely like, it was a lot of responsibility. It's a lot, lot of responsibility to be someone's care provider anyway. But I think there were a lot of eyes on us, you know, my, my clinic director knew what I was doing. Some of her colleagues knew what was happening. There was just a lot of responsibility, but it felt so natural. And so just like the way things are supposed to be. And she had a beautiful birth with both babies. And now the kids, they love it. They're like, you're the first person that ever touched us, you know? Aww. And 
funny because I was at my godson's birth and he's, he just turned 13 last weekend. And my, my oldest grandchild knows that I was at my godson's birth. And so my oldest grandchild asked me one day, do you love him more than you love me? Cause you were at his, his birth first. It's a thing that the kids really feel that I was there. And for me, I mean, I'm sure I feel so connected to them anyway, but oh, I mean, anyone who gets to have that like lineage. It's so yeah. Powerful. It just feels so tribal and like just keeping it in the family in the way that it was meant to be. Yeah, yeah. it's so really special. Oh, I love that. Well, I have friends like that too. I have friends whose births I was at. I got to be at the birth of. There's a woman named Mama Saran, Saran Henderson. She was my midwife, and she was my midwifery mentor. And the woman who taught her midwifery was at my birth also. When And so they were both my mentors. And then Mama Saran's youngest daughter had a baby a couple of years ago, and they asked me to come be the midwife. So the, wow. three, of, the three of us were the midwife for her, and I had been there when she was a newborn. And then not only that, but they had those two midwives who were my teachers had midwifed her husband. Oh my goodness. All of us at this birth were either like had them as our midwife or they midwifed us. It was amazing. And so, um, Leela and there, she, I do an interview with her about her brochure, but I'm literally leaning back on the mentor of my mentor. She's sitting behind me. She's supporting me. Leela is in my lap giving birth on the floor. And then her mom, is, her mom and her husband are, are receiving the baby. It was just like this, it was like some kind of a tribal sculpture or something. Yeah, that's so cool. I love that. And I love just also all of these stories that you're sharing. You know, these are all successful home births. And I yeah. think that not that it's a bad thing to get transferred or whatever. That's just part of the story. And, but I think that people, you know, it's just so nice to hear about all these different births that have been just delivered naturally with the people that you love. And um, we need those stories. We really need those stories to remind us of what's possible within the framework of openness and gratitude and non-self-blame when we do have to transfer to the yeah. hospital. Because there's so much that's beyond our control. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing I've learned about being not just a midwife, but being a mom is surrender, right? You can't control your baby's or child's path. And all we can really do as moms is respond to what they need from us and what the situation calls for. And every baby has their own story. So, you know, if that's transferring to the hospital, I mean, yes, it can feel very disappointing to lose that hope that you had for how your birth was going to go. And it can feel very vulnerable and scary. And, you know, you mentioned not being able to use the word cytotech for a long time. I think another thing that I would include in my book in a way, uh, probably in my postpartum book, um, which is natural health after birth, which I love that book, um, is much more about birth trauma because so many women now experience tr postpartum trauma around it could be either something physical that happened to them via the medical system, something unexpected that happened at their birth, or just the way they felt they were treated can leave them yeah. feeling very 
mistreated and infantilized. So I would write much more about that, which is in the course of course, the online program. But yeah, my first um, birth, when I found out that my son had MCAD is what he and my daughter have. Mm -hmm. So day four, after we got back from the hospital, they, our pediatrician told us the state is having us rush to the children's hospital here in Orange County, which is Chalk Hospital. And then um, they, you know, we're doing all these things and it ended up just going really sour really quickly. And I felt that they started with wanting me to get him on formula and do so many interventions that I didn't feel were necessary and that I could nurse and wanted to continue nursing. And so by the time they wanted to admit us into the um, NICU, we had kind of lost trust in each other. And I felt that my four-day-old child shouldn't be sharing a room with two sick children. And so when I voiced my opinion on that and requested a room um, or mentioned I'd come back in the morning um, because he was fine, it was just like trying to do more tests to confirm the diagnosis and stuff, they ended up calling CPS. It's such a huge threat. It's such a huge threat. I've seen that happen more times than I can tell. And I talk about that in the online course too. Like what can you do to prevent that? And what can you do to deal with it? It's, it was scary as a first time. I, mean, I, I just was shocked because I, they just told me to go wait in a room and then that I could sign myself out, but really I couldn't. And the sheriff came and the C- and CPS mm-hmm. came and my husband and I were in shock and they ended up getting a room for us. And then we went from there and, and we changed care and that's how we ended up connecting with Zach Bush and stuff like that. But the second time around, we did a private newborn screening test and then but we didn't know at the time when we went to the hospital, obviously right after she was born that she had it. And yeah. it was amazing because what Zach had said to me before, he was like, there are, cause I have trauma from that and I've had to you know, move through that. And he was like, there are good people that work in the system and like, there are good people and there are not bad people, but people who might not understand you. And so just remember that. And so the second time when I had to go to the hospital, the same hospital, I was freaking out and my experience with having them hear me out and wait on it and do all that. I was so scared to um, advocate for my daughter because I was like, oh my God, are they going to do this to me again? But I had to do it because I was like, I don't think she needs it. And it was such a beautiful way of rewriting my first experience. That's so powerful. And I just, you know, I just kept thinking there are good, these people are here because they're good people and they're here to keep my child safe. And we might just have a different way of going about it. We can like stay calm and say, Hey, I know that we're both on the same side here, but we have different views of how to get there. Like we can make it work. But I think I'm fiery. And I was like, no, I am not doing this. And so they're like, she's insane. And she like might not be able to take care of this. You well, know. you're fiery and you're like, I mean, everything about being a brand new mom. I, I mean, you'd stand in front of a, a rushing bear to save yeah. your child. You would stand in front of a train to save your child. It's like, uh, no, that is not happening. I know. I mean, all emotions and all that fire just comes out really strongly when we're protecting our newborns. Exactly. Or, like, 
it's like a don't fuck with me moment, you know, postpartum like bleeding in the, you know, you're just like, I can't walk. I'm like in the wheelchair trying to figure out what is going on. But, but like you said, I think it's so important to have, I post the right postpartum care and, um, and the right support. Like if I didn't have my midwife making me food the second time around, like, even the first time like family was around. So I wouldn't have eaten. I didn't want the hospital food. So I would have just been like, I don't want to eat, you know? And I think, and I think like the hospital personnel, like, yes, they're good people, but they're good people. And they're good people with a very different story about what health and safety and whose rights are to make decisions. And I think what they lose the plot on as, and I see this all the time in the hospital is if you actually treat parents like that, that's when you alienate them and they're not going to come in when they do need it. And I've seen that around a lot of, I've seen it around parents who are making different vaccination choices, different healthcare choices. It's like assuming people are crazy and irresponsible rather than making a choice out of often an educated decision that's different or maybe not a fully educated decision, but then how do you educate someone if you basically threaten them? Yeah, exactly. So with the MPLAD, are you able to manage just with nutritional? Do you just have to do some nutritional changes yeah. for your Like yeah. they can, they just have to eat more often. And so nursing them has been such a blessing because then I nurse in the middle of the night and it's not like we need to, you know, go get a snack. Um, my three-year-old, I stopped nursing my toddler who's three once um, I became pregnant because he was like, it's hard to get milk out. Your milk's different. I was like, okay, fine. And that's when it started being, it was more difficult to figure out how to do like the middle, middle of the night stuff. Yeah. You can go longer, but, um, but again, like that was another thing I wanted to mention is I think, you know, you as a first time parent or you just kind of like start to feel more empowered, I guess, like not only with my second, but as time goes along, you're just like, okay, I don't need to go to the hospital. I don't need to call my doctor for this because I've got this. Whereas like in the beginning, it's like, I just need to go straight to the emergency room because I don't want to be responsible for this because I want everything to be perfect. And it's, it's yeah. so stressful, but it's beautiful how, you know, as time goes along and you just kind of, you start to become more in tune and understand your child more and know their cues and know, okay, this is not okay. We need to go. I, it's out of my hands now. You like learn to trust the different, you learn to start to sort out between like fear and instinct or like your deeper knowing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, you're right. It's all about the relationship. You really learn your child. And then, and I, I remember one time when my oldest was really little, he's 36. So when he was like one yeah, he had his first cold and fever. And I called the pediatrician I knew who was, she was actually a family doctor and she was really home birth supportive. And she's like, oh, you need to bring him in. And she wanted to give him an antibiotic. And I was like, I felt, I was already an herbalist, already, you know, studying midwifery. And I filled the antibiotic because like you, I didn't want to be the irresponsible mom. And yeah. I didn't know. But then I was like, wait a minute, this is probably a viral infection. Does he really need it? So I called her on the phone and I was just like, wait, can, can we wait 24 hours to see? And she's like, yeah, you can wait 24 hours if you feel comfortable. And, you know, in 24 hours, he nursed and he, yeah. slept and he was fine and he never needed the antibiotic. But I remember at that time, I was talking with this pediatrician who had at that time cared for, you know, 10, like 10 or 20,000 babies. And he had 11 children. And I think he was Mormon. And he said that, in all of his years of practice, 
that there was only one time he could ever think of where a mom had missed something that was going on with her child. Like, and in all the years of practice, if the mom thought the child was okay, usually the child was, it was like, he really learned to listen to the moms. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Oh, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us and, and educating us. I, I love speaking with you and it just felt like the perfect way to come back right into my work. And I'm so excited to have had this episode. To share. Thank you for honoring me with being in your postpartum like this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy for you. And what a beautiful journey you're, you're, like you're at the beginning of this journey. It's such a beautiful one. Thank you. Yes, of course. Mwah. Mwah.